If you want to know about the future of Automotive Enthusiast magazine, stay right where you are. This is AutoLine. You know, here I am thumbing through a print magazine, standing in front of a magazine rack chock full of different car magazines. When I was a kid, this is how I got my automotive information. You'd thumb through the different magazines and decide which one you want to buy. But the kids these days, that's not how they do it. They're all online. Everything's gone digital. In fact, you've got to wonder if these enthusiast magazines, which have had an enormous influence on the auto industry, are going to go the way of the dinosaur. And to get a better idea of where the genre is headed, my guests today include Chubba Chetta, the former editor of Car and Driver magazine, Eddie Alterman, the current editor of Car and Driver, and John Neff, the editor of Autoblog, one of those up-and-coming enthusiast websites that's taken the world by storm. So if you want to know where the genre is headed, don't go away. We'll be back right after this. From our studios in the Motor City, this is AutoLine. Here now is John McElroy. Welcome to this edition of AutoLine Detroit, where we're going to be talking all about where the enthusiast automotive magazines are headed in the future. And apropos of that, joining us here today are Eddie Alterman, the editor-in-chief of Car and Driver magazine. Great having you here, Eddie. Thanks, John. Also joining us, John Neff, the editor-in-chief of Autoblog, autoblog.com. Great having you here, John. Thanks. And Chubba Chetta, who we're just going to identify as Chubba Chetta. <laughs> Chubba, though, let me start with you. You were formerly the editor of Car and Driver magazine. You spent a good chunk of your career in this business. Where is it going? Because when I look at these magazines, there's far more competition today than there ever was in the past. We've seen the leap over to the digital side of things. I'm not so sure that the traditional enthusiast magazines are successful in that. And now it looks like the advertisers are spreading their ads all around. It can't be as good as it was in the past. Well, it plainly isn't as good as it was in the past. It's a much more difficult market for the enthusiast magazines. But the enthusiast magazine still brings something to the party that no one else does. And that's the quality content. Uh, you know, anyone can throw up a shingle and say, uh, we're Joe Blow's road test house, and uh, they can give you an opinion about some vehicle. But what good is a person's opinion about a Ford Fusion if they haven't driven a Malibu and an Altima and a Camry and a Sonata and everything else out there? Whatever you think of the enthusiast magazines, they have a budget, they have a staff, and these people on those staffs drive everything. When they do a comparison test, they actually put them all together, spend several days, drive them back to back. That's hard to duplicate on a shoestring. Now, this doesn't mean the enthusiast magazines are going to continue doing this solely in print, but I think there's still an appetite for that type of quality, incredible content. And uh, the question is getting it into an electronic form that people will accept and also getting some money out of it. Eddie, how do you do that? How do you, you take what has essentially been a print magazine for its entire existence and make the, the leap over to the online side? And it, it seems to me they're, they still are going to be two different entities. Well, you have to stop thinking of yourself as a magazine, as a print product, and think of yourself as a brand and disseminate the values of that brand. You know what Chevo was talking about, credibility, that independence, that trustworthiness and disseminate that across platforms. And each platform kind of wants its own content. So you have to tailor 
content to the platform. If we just used uh, our feature editorial and threw it up online, we would get no hits. It's just not usable stuff. But each platform sort of declares pretty loudly what it wants. And now we're starting, starting to go to iPad, and we've been pretty successful in mobile by, by using that philosophy. And the iPad, too, will, will declare what it wants, and we'll start to create content for that. John, you represent the disruptive technology here at the table. What do you make of what Chubba said of, you know, uh, the Enthusiast magazine still having the kind of content that presumably online uh, startups, which even though it's, it's hard to call Autoblog a startup <laughs> these days, but it kind of is. Can't you match that same kind of quality? I mean, I got to believe that hiring experienced journalists is very easy to do these days because so many of them have lost their jobs. Yeah, you know, it's easy to do, but it's also expensive. Um, you know, the, the industry as it was in print um, paid, a, paid top dollar for good writing. Uh, online, we have kind of a combination strategy of both creating great writers and welcoming print people online. Um, you know, we certainly don't have the budgets of the magazines, um, but in a case like Autoblog, uh, which you know, we're a very big website, uh, our traffic keeps growing, our budget keeps growing, and it's kind of the responsibility on, on us is to match the quality of the magazines. And that's what we work towards every day. We want to stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with the car and drivers, the motor trends, um, and, and that's what we're, what, we're, what we're going towards. You know, I'm not going to sit here and say that we have every base covered yet. There are certainly things that we do better online in our space than a magazine can do, and there are things that a magazine does better than us, like deep, rich features. Um, but we're kind of walking our path and figuring out how we can do those things uh, on our budget. Chubba, we kicked off the show with me at a magazine rack going through some of the magazines, and I asked the, the person at the bookstore, did, did people really buy these things? And she said, oh, yeah, yeah, but it's been trending downward, especially in the last year or so, and that it's, it's aging boomers like me who, who buy the enthusiast magazines. It doesn't seem to be attracting uh, a, a new generation. Is, is that a fair assessment? Well, it seems to be. Uh, in truth, the downtrend goes back quite a ways. If you look at car and driver newsstand sales, and I think most of the other magazines in the segment would track this, but uh, I think in 85 or 86, newsstand sales averaged 250,000 for the year. The best-selling issue was something like 300,000. Uh, a couple of years ago, my last year at Car and Driver, I think we averaged 120,000 a year, and I suspect it's drifting downwards. I think that's the case. I have a 16-year-old daughter. She reads books. She doesn't read magazines. Uh, you know, she spends a lot of time online. She got, spends a lot of time on mobile, and I think this you know makes it very clear to the magazines that they better get on this electronic uh, uh, medium and be established before the audience disappears. There's just no question about that. Yeah, but I think what what remains are those print values, are uh, those kind of beautifully composed stories with great writing, with uh, you know, great test data, uh, trust, trustworthy stuff. And uh, you know, whether that is on paper or whether that's on an iPad or some new device that's, that hasn't been invented yet, I think those values remain. But will the advertisers uh, be there in, in enough uh, revenue, advertising revenue, to keep that kind of model going. Yeah, well, it's very interesting because the, the print kind of value, the print format, is a very quiet, sort of reflective sort of format. And that's not in high demand <laughs> these days. <laughs> but what it does allow advertisers to do is really tell their story in that kind of quiet environment. And now if you've got digital paper and you can embed video and you can really 
enrich the experience and tell this very rich kind of story, I think advertisers are going to, uh, you know, flock to that. I, I'm, I'm laughing, you know, at what Eddie's saying, John, because, you know, the online audience is a very different audience and it wants here and now and it wants it instantly. Instant, yeah. And if you delay whatever they're interested in for a matter of a few seconds, boom, they're on to the next thing, <laughs> yeah. which, which kind of is the way that Autoblog set up, right? You just go from one story right to the next. Sure, sure. Yeah. I mean, Autoblog is set up in a, you know, chronological order with a river of posts uh, right down the page. And and that, that's a blog. I mean, that's the definition of a blog. But uh, we've tried to evolve that, that model um, and surface the content that really takes the kind of resources and effort to produce something of value. Um, you know, you can, you can write a post in 10 minutes about some silly thing on a Friday that ends up being the biggest story of the week, and you had no idea. And you can spend 50 hours writing a review and, or crafting a comparison, and it's on the page for a day and, and gets some traffic, but then it's off. So it's, it's definitely a challenge to kind of evolve what a blog is and keep that really valuable content, that rich content, at the top in front of readers' eyes while not interrupting that kind of core blog experience of the news and the now. But there really is a conflict between getting things up quickly and doing quality work. And there's no question that the web is great on getting things up quickly. And there's a place for that. I mean, you want to see what's going on today, you click on the web. These are the hot stories. It's terrific. But, you know, when a road test is written at one of the magazines, if the writer gets up on the wrong side of the bed or just got a speeding ticket in his car and tries to rip it a new one, well, you know, that story goes through a number of layers of people who look at it and say, well, gee, you know, you just said that this thing handles terribly. And I I drove it last week and it handles fine. Uh, you know, we got to have some discussion about this because it is actually rather important. You know, yeah. some manufacturers invested a billion dollars in this product. We're telling people whether they should be spending 20, 30, 40,000 of their own money in there. So an accurate review is important. And you don't get that in five minutes or even 50 minutes. You know, it takes a certain amount of time. And there's got to be this mix of kind of stories uh, mm -hmm. going up forward because I think people want quality, reliable uh, information. I think some people do, but that's what I'm uh, wondering in this whole discussion is, can you keep the business model going? I.e., I think there will be a number of people who always want what you're talking about, Chuba. I happen to be one of them. Mm. I like things that are very well researched, well discussed out, and, and give me all the facts. But like I said, I'm, I'm this middle-aged baby boomer, and I don't see a new generation it, following that wants yeah, it's that. It's incumbent upon us as editors to match our content to the appropriate platform and to grow ourselves as brands on these various platforms. Like, um, the Internet wants news. It doesn't want long, sort of rambling feature stories. Uh, so we have to give it that. And consequently, we take some of the news, the hard news that's going to be late, by three months anyway, out of the magazine. So we're adapting uh, all of our platforms to sort of really uh, suit suit the, uh, the given medium. But on the other hand, you know, let's say you're buying a car. The internet is a wonderful medium for providing that information. Because, yes. you know, in any given issue of a magazine, what do you do? You Maybe you cover 25 vehicles, five to 10 of them in great depth, and there's 400 models on the market out there. So, you know, you want to get information on everything. Well, the internet is a perfect place to compile that, make it all available, but still, you know, you're about to spend a lot of money. Don't you want quality information? Do you want just random brain farts from people? Uh, and that's the question of uh, coming up with the right mix there. That also, that also brings up a point, though, too. That there, there's two audiences out there. There is the car shopper and there is the enthusiast, and it's difficult 
uh, I think, for one brand to speak to both at the same time. Uh, Autoblog's fortunate because we can speak to the enthusiasts directly, and we have our sister site, AOL Autos, who's going to talk to the car shopper on that end. Uh, and there's a lot of give and, give and take, but we don't have to play to two audiences. We can assume that our audience has a certain level of knowledge and speak to that. Um, so I, I don't know how it's like for you guys to have to do both at the same time. I would actually disagree a little bit. I think Car and Driver always sort of had two audiences. And what you're seeing with newsstand sales is a lot more people migrating off the newsstand where they're getting their buyer information toward uh, the Internet where there's so much more in terms of functionality and capability. Um, but for a lot of people on the newsstand, Car and Driver was almost like a bridal magazine. When people were in market for car, they would go through it and for six or nine months pick it up, and they would look for uh, that segment and for the comparison test and the road test. And now a lot of that has migrated online. But, uh, and it's sort of bifurcated, but we still speak with the same voice. We still have the kind of Car and Driver values wherever we operate. Even though we're talking to a shopper, we're still doing it in a Car and Driver way. And we're, we're providing them with that deep research, with that credible stuff. You know, what it has freed us up to do a little bit more in print is talk directly to the enthusiast and make it more of a, less, less of a buyer's guide and more of like a, an enthusiast publication almost in the, the old mode or, or the British mode. The, the, the biggest challenge here, I think, for the print magazines is that this is a classic disruptive technology. A few years ago, I read Clayton Christensen's book on disruptive technologies, and the Internet coming into this space is classic. And what the magazines are doing and the publishing companies are doing are exactly what uh, you know, the steam shovel companies did when the uh, Japanese hydraulic diggers uh, uh, came in. Uh, they... they they recognize a little bit of a threat. They set up a little operation to kind of compete in it, but their hearts aren't in it, in, not in it. They never devote full resources. Whenever they hit hard times, that's the first place where they pull back. And the other thing is, you know, the magazines were enormously profitable. Uh, running a car magazine 10 years ago was minting money. And the web is not quite that profitable. And these guys have a hard time wrapping their minds around the fact that we've got to migrate the business this way, even though the profit margin is much lower. And they just can't make themselves do it, but they have to because that's where the future is. Although this is probably the most mature sector online, and we know how to make money at it online, and the money is in this in-market stuff. But I think there's another disruptive technology coming along that's going to be even more disruptive, and that is the, the big format mobile tablet. And I think it's, uh, it's going to value or prize those print values. And I think we're, the pendulum swings back and forth and back and forth. In fact, uh, we uh, had let our audience know that we're, we're doing this very show today, and we've got a question that came in via Twitter from Mud Monster. And, John, I'll throw this to you, but everybody can pick this up. How do you make money when people want the content for free? Uh, well, you know, it's funny for Autoblog. We started as an independent company. Very, very little funds. We had to pay for ourselves as we went um, with just network ads. We didn't have big campaigns coming to us. That kind of um, experience has served us really well uh, because as we go, we kind of make sure we never go beyond uh, what we can pay for. We're always set up for the next, next year, so to speak. Um, now it's our job and, and kind of probably uh, these guys aren't happy about it, uh, or at least Eddie now, but I mean, we, we have to go after those big campaigns now because that's where the money's at. We're, we, we know how to operate on a small budget, uh, and now it's time for us to build our brand, our reputation, uh, and go out after those same campaigns and kind of enlarge the competitive space. There, there are other things you can do, too, and uh, 
Uh, I don't think Car and Driver is doing this, but I think Edmunds is, and that is when people go in and seek car information because they're in market, at the end of the day, when they have some idea of what they want to buy, uh, that lead is, uh, Edmunds offers to hook them up with the dealer, and that person is worth a huge amount of money because this isn't some random set of eyeballs that may or may not be interested in buying a car. This is a self-selecting person who knows they want to buy a car, and by the way, has decided they want to buy this particular car. What's that person worth? It's not 50 cents. It might be worth 50 bucks. Uh, unfortunately, it's an expensive operation to do because instead of selling ads to 50 car manufacturers, now you have to sell leads to 19,000 dealers or however many there are. So it's a whole different business, right. but there's money to be made in that, and it doesn't compromise the value. You know, you can still give totally accurate information to uh, this person, but selling that leads, lead is one way to make money. Eddie, what do you make of this? Giving it away for free, and then how do you make money? You got to get it back somehow. I mean, this has killed the newspapers in this country, and not just this country, by the way. Well, but, TV gives it away for free. But TV always had a model where it was uh, supported by advertising. So it's one thing when you come from a business model that was predicated on making all this money, and then when you make the leap, like you were saying, Chava, it's like, oh, you don't really put your heart in it. It's the first thing that you cut. And I think that's been the, the problem that... Well, newspapers were also hurt by Craigslist, which is kind of a different piece of competition, the, but it sliced off that whole very profitable classified business. No, we have to think, we have to approach it uh, in a totally different way and think about the business plan in a different way. And, I, you know, I think that comes back again to the, to the difference between the enthusiast, who could also be called in the advertising world the influencer, and the in-market shopper. Uh, certainly the most money is in the in-market shopper because that person is closest to actually buying a car. That's who the manufacturers want to reach. Uh, and in an economy like the one we've had for the past few years, that's where all the focus is. Uh, you know, automakers aren't necessarily going to throw their money at the influencer who's going to indirectly affect the purchase. Um, so, so all of us in the enthusiast business are first hit. Um, and, and you kind of have to have an operation that knows how to survive that kind of period. And when the, when the economy picks up and the market picks back up, the influencers become important again. I don't quite see the strong dichotomy between the enthusiast and the uh, in-market buyer. I mean, there's certainly a different person, but an enthusiast magazine can serve both functions because at the end of the day, the, whether the person's an enthusiast or an in-market buyer, they want to know about the vehicle. They want to know what's good about it, what's bad about it, uh, and they want to get this from someone who's knowledgeable. And by the way, knowledgeable people in most areas are enthusiasts. I mean, do you read movie reviews from people who hate going to movies after all? I mean, you know, it's obvious. Uh, uh, what you might have to do is tailor the reviews slightly differently for the in-market buyer than you do for the enthusiast, but you can, uh, uh, you can serve both functions with basically one core road test or one core vehicle review if you're smart about it. Okay, we've got another uh, question, comment here from a guy named Jeffrey Taylor from Facebook who says uh, he does subscribe to magazines because he gets tired of reading on his computer all the time. But he says, are there enough people like me who would pay to have access to a website? Chuba, could, could the enthusiast sites charge? Uh, it seems pretty difficult. I mean, uh, I, th I think the Wall Street Journal is just about the, only, about the only editorial that... site who's been able to charge and, and make money. It, and they did it from day one. Well, yeah. not only that, but they're remarkably rigid about it. Uh, I have a Wall Street Journal print subscription, and I have to pay extra to uh, get onto their website. It's un unbelievable. You know, you'd think if you at least bought one, you'd get the other one. So they're hardcore, and they managed to get it. And uh, I'm not quite sure why. Uh, I guess it's... Re 
it's such a must read among a lot of affluent members of society that they can afford to do it. But they're the only ones that can get away with it. And I think that's a risky way to go in the car business. You can't get that genie back in the bottle. You just have to accept that it's going to be free. I think when you jump platforms and you go and you put your content on a mobile device or an iPad, then you can start charging for it. I mean, people are used to paying four bucks for a ringtone. If you're giving them great content every month, four bucks is a bargain. John, what would happen to your viewership if all of a sudden you started charging for your website? <laughs> it would never happen. <laughs> I don't even want to think about it. Um, but yeah, both of these gentlemen are right. Once, once one site offers it for free, everybody else has to. And I think Wall Street Journal is kind of stands alone uh, as being able to get away with that model. Um, as for the tablet devices, I agree with Eddie that it's going to be hugely important, and the pricing structure is going to be hugely important. I don't know that after the internet has come along and everyone's used to digital content being free, that people are going to be willing to pay 3 or $4 per issue on a tablet device. I think they may see it as, well, I'll, I'll buy the app for $5, maybe pay a yearly subscription, but I'm not going to cough up $4 every month just to view it on my tablet. So. And we'll give them that, that capability. But, you know, we don't have any of the manufacturing and distributing costs, the paper fluctuations, the mail. You know, it's, uh, it's a good deal for us. And it's because of the format that it really works, right? Yeah. Because, I mean, you could get all that online today on a laptop. But it's not composed. It's not uh, curated. It's not given to you in an issue format where you're saying, oh, this is what's important this month. Instead of you having to hunt through our site, where everything is sort of loose, uh, this gives you a really kind of curated, edited experience. Well, and, that, and that's one of the other things that magazines bring to the party. You know, uh, there is a number of areas where I'm interested enough that I check a website every day to see what's going on. But there's other things I'm kind of interested in, but I'm not so interested that I want to check on a, on a daily basis. And I get a magazine once a month. And some other people who know this business, who are interested, who are, know everything that's going on, they've pulled out the important stuff for me. And I can spend an hour, read it, and I'm, I'm informed. You know, there's a value to that. And even though it's less information than I could get, it's the kind of information I want. Why is The Economist doing so well? Because of their great capacity to cull information, to give you the entire world in 112 pages. Yeah, well, I, I think if you've created uh, a, the kind of product that uh, a good base of customers, if you want to call it that, think they have to have, and I think this is true of the Wall Street Journal, and you've always charged them for it, they'll keep on paying. But I'm not sure that they will uh, pay you at all if they've been able to get it for free. To your words, once it's the genie's out of the bottle, you can't put them back in. Yeah, but I think, as I said before, once it jumps platforms and once the, um, the composition changes, once you're actually delivering some value, whether it's just putting everything in one place or composing it in a way that includes video, that includes some value-added uh, interview or you know animation of uh, a suspension piece or, or airflow around a car, uh, then you're actually adding something to the experience and you're doing what the iPad was built for. There's one other thing you can do too, and this is really important for the in-market buyer. As good as the magazine reviews are, and I've been sitting here defending them, you know, there are some weaknesses in that uh, writers only spend so much time with a car. And even if they're dedicated and uh, make an effort to read the manual and understand how things work, it doesn't work out that way.
that way. Uh, when I left Car and Driver, I bought a car, a BMW 335 with iDrive, and I can tell you, I know a hell of a lot more about iDrive now than I ever did as a journalist because right. I lived with the same car. The car right? So if you can incorporate user feedback uh, as part of your reviews, the you can actually get a bigger, broader, better picture than even the best reviewer can produce on their own. That's a great mm -hmm. point. Uh, one last point that I wanted to get to, too, John, uh, is Autoblog in particular, but the other uh, online sites that have come up, really got the kind of influence with the car companies that the enthusiast magazines have had for my entire career. Um, I, I wouldn't say they're quite on par yet, but over the past four years, I mean, uh, the poor automakers, they've, had, they've been inundated with every website requesting media vehicles and access. And it's been their job to kind of sift through and, and see who's, who's kind of worthy of the access. Um, fortunately, we've worked hard to position ourselves to be there. Um, not every website is going to get that. And there's going to be a lot of websites who just sit on the fringe. They just watch what's going on. They really don't have access, and they just comment. Uh, but more and more, the, the, the playing field is kind of settling. and, and because, because you're getting the kind of audience that you know, matches, if not exceeds, some of the enthusiast correct, magazines. Correct, correct. Right? And, and the, the automakers notice that. They want uh, eyeballs, uh, which we've got plenty of. So, so we've, we, we've definitely been invited to the table, uh, along with a couple other websites. But yeah, it's certainly not everyone. I mean, they didn't open the floodgates and just let every website uh, into the room. They've been careful about kind of picking and choosing, and there have been mistakes made. And, and, uh, but I think, the, I think the playing field is settling, and, and so a few big players on the internet. There's a limiting I'm going to have to cut us okay. off. I'm sorry, Eddie. This is a terrific conversation. We'll probably let the, the whole conversation keep on going. But I want to thank you all. Eddie Alterman, John Neff, Chubbachetta, great having you guys here. Great discussion. I'll be back for the close of the show. Okay, so maybe these enthusiast magazines are not going to go the way of the dinosaurs, at least not yet. But clearly, they're really struggling in figuring out how to cross the digital divide. You know, I got a feeling that when my generation dies off, we're going to take these guys down with us as the online world continues to disrupt yet another part of the media. But that brings us to an end at this show. For all of us here at Autoline Detroit, thanks for watching. We'll see you next week.